a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hey, here we are once again. Welcome to the program. Our show is brought to you today by Firesteel.com as well as by the uh, Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Very grateful to have them as sponsors. And by the way, I'm just going to put this out there. I uh, I have room for other sponsors. If you would like me to evangelize for your business or your product or your service, talk to me. I'm pretty easy to reach. Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find a contact link down at the very bottom of the landing page. And I would love to talk with you about to putting your message in the ears of lots of very motivated listeners. Where to begin today? You know, if there's if there's anything that can get us through tough times... It's got to be maintaining a sense of humor. And this is one of the reasons why the satirical Babylon Bee has become so popular among online readers. And it's it's one of my favorites. Look, I don't go there because I'm going to get the news that I can't get anywhere else. I'm, I go there because I know that whatever they have to say about the news is going to contain some form of satirical humor that's going to at least help me have a good laugh at how ridiculous and in some cases pathetic things have become. And so it's not surprising that uh, with that audience and that that growing uh, uh, that growing uh, tribe of online readers that the Babylon Bee has attracted the attention of the humorless right think commissars who are doing everything they can to shut down even humorous voices of dissent. I mean, look, outright uh, rejection or rebellion against the message of the think writer, the right thinkers. uh, That's one thing. But they cannot stand being laughed at. That is ridicule to them is worse than defiance. And so they they fight against it because it's one of those ways that people can actually consider truths they might not have considered if it were delivered in a harsh or angry tone. I found a, a this is just a post that the Babylon Bee had made on Facebook. But I wanted to share you share this message with you. This is from Seth Dillon, who's the CEO of the Babylon Bee. And tells you a little bit about where they're coming from. Now, maybe you're a fan, maybe you aren't. I think their their humor, I believe, is is spot on. But I also like it because it's not quite as coarse as the Onion. And the Onion has made me laugh a lot over the years. But uh, the Babylon Bee manages to get their message across without uh, resorting to four letter words, nudity, or you know anything else that might you know take it out of the bounds of family friendly satire. And this is what uh, Seth Dillon had to say. He said, in case you haven't heard, Twitter suspended our account on Monday. In an email to us, they claimed that we violated their rules against, quote, platform manipulation and spam. And that email included a warning that if we tried to open another account, that new account would be suspended, too. So what the Babylon Bee did was that they published screenshots of the email and their suspended Twitter page. And then they called on their followers to make some noise. And Seth Dillon says we started trending almost immediately. And Twitter responded by reinstating us, saying we'd been suspended by mistake. So he says we're back on Twitter, at least for the time being. But we share the concerns of others who've rightly observed that these mistakes tend to work in one direction. You can probably guess which direction that is. He says we're grateful to have followers who aren't afraid to speak up and hold these big tech companies accountable. But there are no guarantees. 
We couldn't be sure they'd reinstate our account. We can't know if they will the next time they make a mistake. But he says we can do our best to prepare for a worst-case scenario, at least if we can have your help. He says, when we first launched our our subscription service, the primary reason we gave for supporting us was to help us become less dependent on big tech companies. We explained, we depend on Facebook and Twitter to drive traffic and Google ads to monetize it. Without these networks, we'd have no revenue to cover our expenses. And as you're probably aware, none of these companies are friendly to Christians or conservatives. In fact, that's a severe understatement. The control these companies exercise and the outright hostility they display toward those with more traditional views and values has us deeply concerned about our future as a publisher of Christian satire. But he says, here's the thing. If just a small fraction of our readers become paid subscribers, we'd have enough funding to survive without running ads effectively eliminating our dependence on these big tech companies. The more subscribers we have, he says, the less we have to worry about our dependence on Twitter, Facebook, Google, etc. So he says, I'll close with the same call to action you might have heard from us before. If you value the Babylon Bee and want to see us prevail against Twitter and anyone else who might seek to discredit or deplatform us, please consider becoming a subscriber. Your support will make a difference. And from our whole team, he says, thank you for your loyal leadership your loyal readership, rather, and support. I think that's a very worthwhile call to action. And, uh, you know, I would, I'd like to put out a similar call for my own subscribers. And, and frankly, I have some who have, have stepped up. I have a number that have stepped up and become donors to this show. And I appreciate that. But I'm going to put my, uh, I, I'm going to put my influence out here for the Babylon Bee and tell you if, if you find value in what they're doing, even if it's just to bring a smile to your face or some laughter to your heart in times when it's hard <laughs> to find, you know, humor, maybe consider becoming one of their supporters. I know some people would say humor is a frivolous thing. And really, you know, I try. I had fun once. It was awful. You know, OK, if, if that's your attitude, maybe this is not for you. But if you're someone who can appreciate being able to keep a sense of humor, even when things are tough and apparently getting tougher around us, this may be one of those places. This might be a good cause where you might want to consider putting some influence in the form of send them a few bucks. See what you can do to help them. Don't let those right-think commissars shut them down. Don't let them succeed. Okay, moving on. You notice that there's a push to rewrite history right now? And, I mean, the 1619 Project from the New York Times is one example of it. I think probably the, the biggest and most glaring example that I can see is all the demonstrations and looting and rioting and actual tearing down of statues and monuments across America. Clearly, if you want to rewrite history, the first thing you have to do is erase it. And I've I've wondered about this for some time. Why are they so intent on tearing down these statues and monuments? And I think it's because they are tangible reminders of things that came before us, which may or may not have been 100% right. But, uh, for instance, this is and this is just my opinion. Tearing down statues to Confederate generals has less to do with, well, these statues are a celebration of slavery. I don't think they are. I think what, what worries the people who want those statues torn down is they represent tangible evidence that there was a time when people would stand up to unreasonable central authority. And yes, I'm saying the Union was that unreasonable central authority. Now, to the extent that the South supported, uh, you know, maintaining that peculiar institution of slavery, they were wrong. But it wasn't the only reason why they stood up to 
unreasonable centralized authority. It's not the, it, you know, it was the fact that uh, that Lincoln invaded them. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm off on a tangent now. This is going to, you know, reignite the whole war between the states or the war of northern aggression, or as I prefer to call it, the Lincoln's war of involuntary union. But my point is simply this. It was history. It really did happen. There was a time when people stood up and said, no, we're not going to go along with this. And that, I believe, threatens the uh, the control that centralizers and consolidators of power wish to attain. Now, James L. Caton, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a very timely essay titled Stop Tearing Down Statues. Use them to tell the story of American liberty. Now, if you think that sounds like, well, he just wants to whitewash everything and make it sound like it was okay, listen to what he actually has to say. He says, every week it seems I read news stories of mobs in the United States tearing down statues or of state and local governments choosing to remove these monuments. He says, sometimes these statues are of individuals who seem to be most wretched. He asks, why does any city need to have a statue of Robert E. Lee? I can tell you, if he actually had read anything written by Robert E. Lee or studied Robert E. Lee's character, he would he would know that um, because Robert E. Lee, in spite of whatever, you know, failings he may have had, was one of the most upstanding man, upstanding men in American history. But I digress. He asks, do the supporters of these statues yearn for a time when the South was supposedly free from the oppression of the North, while half the population in many southern states were slaves? Or perhaps more charitably, do those sympathetic to Lee feel he made the correct decision in choosing to lead the South instead of the North? He says, either sentiment is insufficient to oppose the demands of protesters that citizens of the United States need to express collective disapproval of this character from our history. The obvious identification of the South with the defense of slavery makes the defense of these profane memorials a losing proposition. Now, I'm going to beg to differ with him on this. Robert E. Lee did not specifically set out to defend the South. He set out to defend his home state of Virginia, which was invaded by the Union Army. He was a Virginian first. And again, anybody who has bothered to read his writings will know he was not adamant about supporting slavery. In fact, he called it a horrible institution. He called it something that that needed to go away. But you got to remember, the, the collective public opinion at that time, even within the North, would not support such a thing. We'll come back to the story here in just a few moments, but again, the idea is instead of tearing these monuments down, instead of getting rid of these statues, what if we learned from them the story of American liberty? And we'll be back in just a few moments to do exactly that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. This is a place where wrong think is not only tolerated grudgingly, but actually welcomed and reveled in. And I'm glad you're a part of our audience today. I'm sharing with you an article here from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is from James L. Caton. Stop tearing down statues. Use them to tell the story of American liberty. And he asks a question, you know, you know, why do why do different localities need statues, say, of Confederate generals? And he says, and what about more ambiguous figures like does Christopher Columbus need to be demonized for his licentiousness and the oppression that he seems to have brought upon the lands opened by his exploration? And to that, he asks, how far does this reasoning go? 
Ought statues of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington also be removed since both owned slaves? Was the American Revolution devoid of value owing to the widespread existence and institutionalization of slavery in the American Constitution? Now, before I go any further, here's a quick aside. It's wrong. It is dead wrong for us to judge how those in the past acted based on whatever the standards are or the hindsight that we possess today. You got to remember, this is not something that they created. They did not create the institution of slavery. This was part of the world they were born into. And there were many of them who worked to end that. But it took time. It took effort. And there was a point in time where society, and I mean generally society, not just not just the uh, the moneyed people, but but generally society saw slavery as well. You know, it's it's there, but it's you know it's what makes things happen. So it's very presumptuous for us to think that well they should have seen things the way that we do. Trust me, if you've ever read any of the writings of the founding generation, if you if you could just read the writings of the average American farmer at that time. You would find depth and breadth that is lacking in just about every corner of American society today. So no matter how woke or enlightened we feel, uh, we need to take a little bit of uh, humble pie and, and just back it off a notch and realize they were doing the best they could under the circumstances. And they were neither devils nor angels. And quite frankly, we're in a very similar situation. We have blind spots as well. And we will be harshly judged by those in the future who look at us and say, what were we thinking? Where were our heads? Back to the article. The removal of statues of historical persons deemed to be offensive has not resulted in a constructive conversation. In fact, the removal of these statues, the author says, implicitly accuses those who would oppose their removal as being morally inferior. How can you argue that we ought to honor evil men with statues? The terms of the argument inherently favor those who wish to extract these altars of evil. Now, James Caton says maintaining historical memory of characters that many deem offensive is not necessarily approval of those characters. How ought a society remember the darker periods of their history? Well, he says Hebrew scripture, commonly known in the Christian world as the Old Testament, has successfully confronted this very problem. A reading of the Tanakh does anything but paint a picture of a society whose leaders were above reproach. Jacob stole the blessing of his father Isaac from his brother Esau. The prophet Samuel warned the people of Israel that their desire for a king would accompany political oppression. King David, who's largely praised, had an affair with the wife of his officer Uriah and followed up by sending Uriah to die on the front lines. King Solomon, extolled for his wisdom, worshipped foreign gods. And the, remain, the remainder of Israel's history, as told in the Tanakh, does not meet with much with approval from the biblical narrative. In fact, prophets arose and are praised for their willingness to call the leaders and people of Israel to a path of redemption. Now he says, like those who recorded the history of the Israelites, we need to remember the good and evil in our own history and to understand that history is rife with ambiguity. Often the characters of, of history evince a mix of both. Even in the case that dishonorable men were memorialized, what should or should we not remember the communities preferred to honor them? Should we not ask ourselves what meaning we ought to imbue, ought to imbue historical interpretations that seem distasteful to our modern sensibilities? Now, his point is that uh, the heroes of our American narrative are imperfect. I can't disagree with him there. Yet he says it would be dishonest to condemn them due to their imperfections. Leadership of the American Revolution succeeded against the odds 
in launching a project oriented by a claim that human liberty is inviolable. Their principles were worthy of pursuit, even if the principles were imperfectly applied in their personal lives. And more important, they helped develop a political stage that facilitated a conversation that enabled the polity to transform. Slavery eventually did end in the land whose founding documents praised individual liberty. Neither is it a coincidence that the liberal tide has led to widespread legal equality whose breadth is without historical precedent. Application of these principles has been imperfect, but application of liberal principles is certainly more perfect than it was before the American Revolution. Now, I would actually argue maybe it actually went a little bit past the mark, but the point is still there. Who set the stage for the abolishment of slavery? It was the founding generation, even if they still practiced it at a personal level. Many of them saw the wrong that it was. Many of them yearned to see the day that it could be done away with, and they set the stage under which it could happen. Now, he says, history doesn't offer us a picture of moral perfection. And this is important to remember because it applies to us as well. If we are to discard history for its imperfections, then we will end up discarding in whole our own history and the cultural heritage that is bound to it. It has become the norm for many to view existing institutions as the result of a history of repression. Language exists in its current form because it empowered an oppressive elite. Governing institutions, too, embody the oppressive aims of an elite seeking to maintain their legal and cultural superiority. No institution and no body of knowledge is above reproach in the power narrative. All other narratives must be discarded if we are to overcome oppressive social constructs. Michel Foucault, in his uh, Reflecting on the Interaction Between Knowledge and Power, argued, One's point of reference should not be to the great model of language and signs, but that of war and battle. He says the history which bears and determines us has the form of a war rather than that of a language, relations, or power, nor not relations of meaning. History has no meaning, though this is not to say that it is absurd or incoherent. On the contrary, it is intelligible and should be susceptible of analysis down to the smallest detail. But this in accordance with the intelligibility of struggles, of strategies, of tactics. Dialectic is a way of evading the always open and hazardous reality of conflict by reducing it to a Hegelian skeleton. If you haven't studied Hegel, that's a, that's a guy who you want to at least understand the Hegelian dialectic, because boy is it at work in our lives. Now, in this case, uh, James Caton says Foucault denounced any interpretation of history as collective effort, successful or otherwise, at developing and refining a constitution that embodies our shared values. Rather, history is the retelling of a war veiled and distorted by collective narratives. Many academics and intellectuals have adopted this meta-narrative of power, expressing, expressing either a skepticism of other meta-narratives in their work or elaborating the perspectives of micro-narratives of minority groups that appear to be oppressed under the status quo. A growing number of histories have focused on the struggles of racial minorities, immigrants, women, members of labor organizations, basically any groups that appear to operate outside of the dominant nexus of power. In the process, he says... The ideal of American identity has been replaced by a, or displaced by a focus on social deconstruction and micro-narratives. Further concentration on the hegemony of American culture and political power in the humanities has limited the appeal of a shared American identity that would include a commonly shared historical narrative. In its place, the American political conversation has taken a turn toward polarization and antagonism. 
And this power meta-narrative precludes a shared construction of social reality that could offer a unifying vision, or at least it has so far. So just to, to get to the point here, he says, don't destroy the statue of Robert E. Lee. Maybe a statue of Harriet Tubman being erected in proximity to his statue would be handy. Tell of her service during the Civil War. Wax about the successes and challenges of the Underground Railroad. Tell the story of a struggle for liberty for oneself and others. And I would add to that, tell the story that Robert E. Lee, in his own way, fought for liberty. Even if it was imperfectly, his side was more on the side of liberty than was the Union. Okay, with that firecracker lit, I'm going to run away. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I hope that you will take the time to do business with my sponsors, particularly if you would go to firesteel.com. It would make me very happy. In fact, I would take it as a great personal favor if you were to do so, simply because they have something that you need. And it's these incredible fire steel products. Uh, We're talking about a uh, fire steel rod with a sparker with which you can start a fire under almost any conditions. And it's so much handier than trying to stockpile thousands upon thousands of matches or hundreds of Bic lighters. You can use this to start a fire, even if it's sitting in a bucket of water, pull it out, wipe it off, and strike the spark to your tinder, and it really works. In fact, my friend Carl had just recently purchased one and uh, told me last night he was striking sparks into his kitchen sink, which he said did not please his wife particularly, but, you know, as, as a fellow pyromaniac and someone, I guess getting in touch with my inner caveman, I really get a kick out of seeing just the, the incredible spark that these uh, these fire starters can can throw. And the point is they work. And there's a lot of stuff that uh, you can look at and say, I don't know if I could hang my hat on it. This is one of those things you can absolutely count on. Go to firesteel.com. They have plenty of demo videos. They have a wide range of products. These are the finest quality fire starters that you will find. They're affordable. They're not the cheapest. Now, I'm not going to tell you. They're just, you know, they're dirt cheap. You'll pay for the quality, but it's still affordable. And best of all, you mentioned my name at checkout, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N. Put that in as your coupon code, and you'll save 10% on your purchase. Firesteel.com. So I didn't watch any of the uh, Democratic National Convention. I did find it interesting. Um, Our friend Christian Watson, who we've had on the show a couple of times, tweeted last night. He says, I can't believe I'm saying this, but he says, I think Joe Biden may have just won the 2020 election. I didn't see Biden's acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention, but apparently it was something else. And for all those moments where Biden has lost his way or forgotten what he was saying or just kind of gone astray in the middle of a sentence, um, it sounds like he may have knocked it out of the park. Now, there's a meme circulating right now on, on Facebook and other places, and it says simply, if 2020 was an election, and it has a picture of Joe Biden and a picture of Donald Trump. And I get it. It's it's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek look at, yeah, this has been a really rough year. I don't think the election is necessarily going to make it any better. But if you were trying to, tr- to choose a true leader in the 2020 election, how can you make that choice? Well, thankfully, our friend Barry Brownstein has a marvelous essay that addresses that very issue. 
and I love where he goes on this. Bear with me. He says, leaving our Airbnb rental in Maine a few weeks ago, I chatted with the owner, whom I'll call Fred. Barry said to him, I hope, I see, I hope when we see you next year, the world is in a better place. To which Fred replied, I'm looking forward to better leadership. And Barry Brownstein said, well, I'm afraid you're, you'll be sadly disappointed. And Fred said, well, I know who I'm voting for. And Barry Brownstein says, I assumed his enthusiasm was about Joe Biden. Now, the Biden-Harris ticket will beat the drum of better leadership throughout the campaign. During their debut appearance, Kamala Harris praised Biden, saying he answered a country crying out for leadership. Is Biden a better human being than President Donald Trump? Well, Barry Brownstein says, I wouldn't trust the character of either. Does Biden have a better personality? Ask the voters he insulted on the campaign trail and even offered to fight. In his 1801 first inaugural address, Jefferson said, Sometimes it is said that man cannot be trusted with the government of himself. Can he then be trusted with the government of others? Or have we found angels in the forms of kings to govern him? And Barry Brownstein asks, could Biden articulate the principles, not campaign promises, by which he intends to lead? And he says, yes, I would ask the same question of Harris, Trump, and Vice President Mike Pence. Harris seems to believe that strong leadership begins with decisive action, expanding the role of government in our lives. Jefferson thought otherwise. The strongest government on earth, Jefferson explained, is where the population defends the rule of law, not men. Jefferson would say, don't trust Trump or Biden. Trust in the principles of the Constitution. Jefferson explained that in the Constitution, he found resources of wisdom, of virtue, and of zeal on which to rely under all difficulties. In short, leadership without principles is not leadership. Now, Harris says she wants a mandate, yet Jefferson understood the country was a republic, not a democracy. In the Constitution, there are no provisions for claiming a governing mandate. Claiming to have a mandate based on a majority vote, Jefferson would say, violates a sacred principle and makes you an oppressive tyrant. In fact, he would say it like this. Though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable. That the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. Many have pointed out that today's progressives behave like medieval inquisitors. Jefferson pointed to political intolerance as despotic and wicked as religious intolerance. Quote, let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and affection without which liberty and even life itself are but dreary things. And let us reflect that having banished from our land that religious intolerance under which mankind so long bled and suffered, we have yet gained little if we countenance a political intolerance as despotic, as wicked, and as capable as, of as bitter and bloody persecutions. So what should government do? Well, Jefferson was clear. A wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. And this is necessary to close the circle of our felicities. Now, Barry Brownstein points out here that in his address, Jefferson didn't promise a single new program, but he explored the principles by which he would lead. Listen to this. When's the last time you heard a politician talk like this? Equal and exact justice to all men of whatever state or persuasion, religious or political, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. 
the support of the state governments in all their rights as the most competent administrations for our domestic concerns and the surest bulwarks against anti-Republican tendencies. Wow. As Brownstein points out, timeless principles are the most important in turbulent times. After stating more of America's principles, Jefferson added that these principles alone lead to peace, liberty, and safety. Again, quoting Jefferson, quote, These principles form the bright constellation which has gone before us and guided our steps through an age of revolution and reformation. The wisdom of our sages and the blood of our heroes have been devoted to their attainment. They should be the creed of our political faith, the text of civic instruction, the touchstone by which to try the services of those we trust. And should we wander from them in moments of error or of alarm, let us hasten to retrace our steps and to regain the road which alone leads to peace, liberty, and safety. End quote. So Barry Brownstein says today politicians seem to believe in their authority alone. And by the way, this is not just true at the presidential level. It happens at every level. Jefferson believed in an infinite power that can enlighten our actions through a benign religion, professed, indeed, and practiced in various forms, yet all of them inculcating honesty, truth, temperance, gratitude, and the love of man. If you want to make the case that your favorite candidate will come closer to Jeffersonian principles and do less damage, Barry Brownstein says, I might agree. Yet I doubt if Trump, Biden, or Harris have ever considered Jeffersonian ideals. He says, in our troubled times, can any, will any candidate retrace their steps in order to regain the road which alone leads to peace, liberty, and safety? Jefferson understood that constitutional leadership begins with being a steward of our constitutional principles. And Barry Brownstein says, I'm terrified of what awaits a politically intolerant, unprincipled, post-constitutional America. Now, I don't know if, if, if it seems to you like, well, you guys are just whistling past the graveyard to go back and read these words of long dead old white men who once were slave owners. Stop fixating on the identity and fixate more on is there truth in the words that Jefferson wrote? Is there substance in what he wrote? This is one of the hardest things in, in a world where we're trained to be so ideologically sensitive to, well, who said it? Did it come from the Washington Post? Okay, well, then I can agree with that. Did it come from the New York Times? Oh, well, that's nothing but claptrap. That's how we tend to think. You've got to be the kind of person who can accept and recognize truth from any source. And sometimes you're going to find there are some unlikely sources for truth. This is one of the reasons why it's so essential we break out of our echo chambers and stop just listening to people who agree with us. I know it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to run into ideas that I don't necessarily agree with. It pushes up against the boundaries of what I know or what I believe to be true. And sometimes that gets a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes, you know, I find myself mentally thinking, how could I refute this? Stop thinking about how to refute it. And just try to understand, is there substance? Vet it and see, is there something to this? More often than not, even if it doesn't change your mind, at the very least you're going to come away with an expanded perspective, a better vantage point than you had before. And isn't that, after all, what the search for truth is about? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks again for joining us here on The Brian Hyde Show. Just a quick moment here to say a couple of kind words about staplesmortgage.com. That's where you will find my friend John Staples and his wife, Heather. They are the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you are looking to refinance your existing home loan, maybe you're in the neighborhood for uh, for a new home loan. These are the folks you want to talk to. Patriot Home Mortgage has the experience, the clout, the reach to make it a reality for you. They started in little old St. George, Utah, which, by the way, now has grown into a fairly uh, decent-sized metro area. And now they are in 23 different states. And my friend John and his wife, Heather, can help you like nobody's business. Just go to staplesmortgage.com and let them do the legwork for you. They really go the extra mile. They know what they're about. I would trust them. And that's why I'm giving my highest recommendation, staplesmortgage.com. It's the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So with all the stuff that's going crazy around us, it is hard to to feel like you have any semblance of control over uh, a lot of the aspects of your life. And I'm not, I'm not alone in this either. I, I feel it too. I, I, I see uh, sometimes that I need a little gentle reminder to focus on the simple things that are right in front of us, that can be hard to do, especially during an election season, especially when so much of, of the focus of, of what's being talked about or what's being broadcast to us tends to, to hyper-focus on, well, you know, this is what the politicians are saying, as if it is the most important thing in the world. It took me a while to get to the point where I realized, you know what, it's only as important as you make it, And while that's not a call to say, you know, therefore, don't vote anymore, I can totally respect the people who say, you know, my vote is probably the least effective thing I do in my life to make the world a better place. Travis Holt has a terrific article on the Abbeville Institute blog, that's abbevilleinstitute.org, about the simple things. I want you to hear what he has to say. Tell me you don't find a little bit of hope in this message. He says, I was raised in one of the poorest counties in northwest Arkansas, where my ancestors settled in the 1850s and scratched out a living of poor, rocky hillsides. They raised their families, fought in the war, battled famine and drought, and came out ahead, leaving their children small, improved farms. Now, they taught them the joy of being independent, finding solace and comfort in hard work and a job well done, and the importance of passing these things to their children. They were proud, hardworking toilers who expected nothing from anyone save like treatment, and they despised government intervention into their affairs, much like most of the southern mountaineers and settlers. The northwest corner of Arkansas was poor in money, but rich in character and natural resources. Here, they would make their stand. Now, he says, of course, my experience was different. By the time I came along in the late 1980s, My great-grandparents were aging, but they kept up the old ritual of gardening and canning until they were physically unable to do so anymore. To this day, the cellar at their home, which they built with their own hands and completed in 1956, is stocked with canned goods. He says, growing up, I was intrigued by what they did, but didn't get involved outside of maybe walking the rows of corn behind my great-grandmother. My great-grandfather died when I was 10. My grandparents raised a little garden, but mainly subsisted on what they bought or got from their grandparents. Ditto, my parents. We had a token garden, living in the country, but didn't place great importance on it, though it was oft discussed how important it was. But he says words and actions are two different things. Fast forward some years, and I marry into a family in the county north of us, even closer to Missouri. 
and we begin having children and starting a home of our own. My lifetime of knowing gardening and things and like things were important is still with me. And he says, it becomes more clear to me as I lose the older generations about me. My great-grandfather passed, and then my grandfather and his brothers. Soon, my link to the past is all but gone from me. Though I long ago accepted it, I was the family historian, being blessed and growing up literally across the creek from where my fourth great-grandfather homesteaded and survived an assassination attempt during the war, but that's a story for another time. And I collected pictures, interviews, and documents. But he says, the practical side of traditions was sadly lost upon me. However... He says, my wife had a very different approach. Her family were farmers and dedicated to what today is sometimes referred to as homesteading. And she practiced it with a dedication bordering, admittedly at times, psychotic. Don't ever tell her I said that. She soon had me helping in the garden, and I began to enjoy the weed pulling, harvesting, and planting that went along with the declining grocery bill. Not to mention the healthfulness of eating what you grow over what you buy in the local local supermarket. But it wasn't until we got into strawberries that it really hit me. We planted two rows of ever-bare strawberries to try something different. We also got into fruit trees at the time, but that's in an in-the-future project. When they start producing, and Lord did they produce, we began picking nearly daily. We started involving the children in the harvesting since it was a lighter task, and we both agreed it was immensely important that they learn such things for use in their lives. One evening, after we harvested a bucket of strawberries, and man, those things are amazing. I always said I didn't care for strawberries because because all I'd ever had were store-bought ones. We settled down on the patio in the shade to relax and have supper. And he says it was right about then that it hit me. I have spent so much of my young life chasing material things, and I'm still guilty of that, but I had never truly picked up on the physical here-and-now concepts of what is truly important. I am giving my children what my ancestors taught their children, the concepts of planting, harvesting, and the joy and reward of a hard day's work. My wife excels in canning and processing food. We've always stocked, uh, we always have a stocked pantry of food for a rainy day. He says, my grandmother tells me that my great-grandmother would have absolutely loved my wife had she lived long enough to meet her because their outlook is so similar. But as cheesy as it may seem, he says, life truly is about the simple things. Your family, your community, the ability to have independence, even if it's a small scale, producing your own food. It's still a good start. He says, traditions that I work to preserve, I have, but this was one that was never taught to me and I nearly lost it. Keep that in mind with your children and your family. These things will die if not passed on. Sitting there in the cool of our patio, watching my children enjoy their strawberries, I could close my eyes and see my great-grandparents do the same as they watched the children who became my grandparents enjoy the fruits of their labor and the land. He says, blood and soil is a real concept, and it's still there for the taking. God bless you and yours, and may Dixie's eternal light and the light of our strong Southern families perpetually shine. I love the fact that that part right there is going to trigger exactly the right people. He says, lose not faith, but when you can, or when you become down, rather, or you get frustrated on something you can't change, work on something you can change. Start small, and you will work forward to larger things. Keep your faith, your family, and your hope. Now, that seems like a pretty simple thing, doesn't it? 
I mean, for some people, in fact, they might be, you know, shaking their heads going, okay, it's, it's, it's a little too simplified. You want to be a son of the soil, Brian? Well, you go right ahead. But I think the larger point that he is making here is that we have simple things right in front of us. And there are traditions that should be a part of, of who we are. You know, you've heard me talk about, uh, you know, the, the fire starter, my, my, my uh, fire steel fire starter. That's a tradition I want my kids, especially my boys, to know. I think my girls should know it, too, but they should have the ability to, to start a fire using just, uh, you know, flint and steel. There was a time when we actually created a family uh, camping club with some other friends and other families. And this was a tradition, well, for quite a few years. I'm sad to say that uh, somehow our priorities shifted and we have not been camping in quite some time. I mean, really camping. But there for a while, we built up this little group of, of this camping club and we would go out there with like-minded families and we would camp. And I mean, we did it in 100-degree summertime weather. We did it in single-digit wintertime weather, camping in the snow, sleeping in tents. Yes, we had uh, stoves for the tents, so, and we took a couple nice big chunks of coal to keep things going through the night, and it, it was surprisingly comfortable. I still think one of the happiest traditions that we ever did was to go camping for Thanksgiving. And it's something my kids still talk about, even though it was a long time. This was 15 years ago, the last time we, we did a really honest-to-goodness, let's, uh, let's go out there and suffer. And there was some suffering involved. It was cold. I don't know if you've ever woke up in the middle of the night in a tent and realized that the camp stove has gone out and it's about 20 degrees in the tent. It's, uh, well, let's just say it's an experience getting that fire going when you're shaking and, and just chilled to the bone. But it's funny, my kids never talk about the hardship so much as they talk about the fun that we had and the things that we learned. So whatever the traditions are that you would like to see passed on, maybe you should uh, take note of those. Maybe you should sit down and talk about them with your kids. Better still, maybe you should sit down and do them with your kids and make sure they understand that this is the kind of thing they should consider passing on to their kids. doesn't matter who's president to do that kind of stuff. You can take care of this all on your own. This is The Brian Hyde Show.